This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su-an. On 25th August 2017, the Myanmar military launched a deadly crackdown on Rohingya people, leading to an exodus of more than 700,000 Rohingya people at the time into Bangladesh. Now, today it's reported that more than a million Rohingya are living in refugee camps across Cox's Bazaar, now known as the world's largest refugee camp. But five years later, have we done enough or anything at all to address the situation that the refugees are facing in the camp, the humanitarian crisis that is brewing in Cox's Bazaar. So joining me on the show today is Paul McFun, who is the Director of Operations for Southeast and East Asia Pacific for Doctors Without Borders. Um, and he will hopefully be able to shed some light on what's happening in Cox's Bazaar, as well as the role that Myanmar's neighbours, you know, including Malaysia, that, um, that we can and should play as Rohingya refugees remain unable to return home. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to have you here. I think perhaps before we start, right, many of us are familiar with um, Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières as a medical humanitarian organisation, but could you share a bit on what MSF's role is at Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh and what the setup is like there? Yeah, of course, absolutely. So we, we've been in Bangladesh for many years, um, decades in fact, um, and primarily providing support to um, refugee populations, people like that I think have crossed across the border into Bangladesh seeking refuge. Um, we're a very medical organization. Our role is to agree with the Ministry of Health in Bangladesh. What can we do to help support them with this you know, sudden burden that they're trying to manage? And in the case of this latest influx, as you said, over 700,000 people arriving in a matter of weeks um, in in a situation that was completely unprepared for them. Nobody expected this to happen. Our role was to quickly try and scale up our medical services, essential medical services, uh, to deal with the situation that they'd been facing. And many of them were arriving really traumatized. They'd been driven out of their villages at gunpoint. Um, they'd witnessed things uh, nobody should ever see in their lifetime. Uh, and some of them also carried injuries, um, uh, had traveled for days without food or water and were in very, very poor health condition. Uh, so our role is to immediately set up sort of emergency frontline health services, try and help those in the greatest need. And then as the situation gradually starts to uh, develop and get more stable, more organized, then really start to build more um, uh, uh, a spread of health services that can deal with a range of things that people will need care for. That's everything from kind of emergency inpatient care to regular sort of outpatient care for people with different types of ailments, manage infectious diseases, things like dengue as they emerge within the camps, and then deal with the everyday challenges like uh, women in delivery, safe pregnancies and, and things of that nature. And most importantly, also try and help people deal with um, mental trauma, the things that they've witnessed and experienced and how that's affected them. Mm. So it's really not just the short-term immediate medical needs, but more long-term chronic needs as well. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, now, five years on, we see a real shift from what were the more immediate mm -hmm. um, needs of the population to indeed those kinds of chronic health problems. And at the moment, we're seeing a real influx of patients coming to our clinics suffering from diabetes, hypertension, asthma, 
um, and they're finding that they can't um, secure the kind of treatment uh, available to them um, in the camp in the camp setting, at least not adequately. And so we're really seeing numbers of people with these kinds of chronic diseases increasing. Mm. And, you know, Paul, you recently wrote an op-ed piece which touched on what you saw at Cox's Bazaar. Perhaps could you paint us a picture of what it's like at the refugee camps? Because it's something that's very hard for, I think, the rest of us who've never seen situations like that to imagine. So the first thing that strikes you when you you see this camp is is the scale of it. Um, I've never seen a camp that's 16 kilometres long like this before. Uh, and this is 16 kilometers of people packed together uh, into uh, 36 small camps um, that are then encircled by uh, a large uh, fence. So they're contained inside this camp setting to limit their mobility. Uh, and they're contained, if you like, in, in this setting. Um, the shelter that they originally built five years ago is very precarious, built with plastic sheeting, bamboo, materials that are not durable and can't really last um, the time with, um, we, you know, with the heavy rains that we witness there every year, et cetera, et cetera. So you also see parts of the camp that are in really poor condition and degrading. Um, and this temporary nature of the camp, the way it was set up as a temporary response um, with the hope people would return soon, is really striking because um, now five years on, this is quite inadequate mm-hmm. um, for people who are living more or less permanently uh, hosted in Bangladesh. The camp is fairly well organized now. So, you know, five years allowed a lot to happen in terms of putting in roads, pathways, drainage systems, water sanitation. Um, but what you see is, is, is that the distribution of those services, the access people have to them, the quality of those services is very variable. So people find that they have to move from camp to camp sometimes to look for services that are not available closer to them. And because of the... Um, policy of keeping people contained Mm -hmm. um, in camps within camps it's very difficult so they have to negotiate their way through checkpoints they have to convince guards that they have a medical problem and that they need to see a physician Um, and all in all then people live in a really in a stressed sense you know they don't have freedom of movement they're not allowed to work there's very limited access to education have no real agency and mm-hmm. they don't know what the future is going to bring. They worry about their children constantly. And this permeates a, a sense of mistrust, a sense of uh, collective sort of despair at their situation. So people are, are unhappy, uh, they're, they're, they're insecure and they feel quite, they, they feel quite unstable. Mm. What is the status of refugees, of Rohingya refugees there in Bangladesh? So most countries in this region have not signed up to um, uh, um, the Convention on the Rights of the Refugees. So mm-hmm. um, as a result, they have no real legal status. Um, they had their, their rights to citizenship or full citizenship revoked um, in Myanmar almost 40 years ago now. And so we can describe them as the world's largest, effectively stateless population. And by that, I mean... You know, Myanmar is refusing to take a legal responsibility for them and afford them the protection they deserve as citizens of Myanmar. And by consequence, when they are displaced, as the majority are now, whether they're in Bangladesh, in Thailand, in Malaysia or Indonesia or elsewhere, they have no state that's assuming responsibility. And if you and I were to run into trouble overseas, Mm -hmm. you know, we'd depend on our home country to represent us and help us. In this case, they have 
that they, they, they don't have those protections, they don't have those rights. Mm. You know, you described earlier that the, the camp is really 16 kilometres long. What does that mean in terms of capacity? I mean, you know, you mentioned also that it's it was initially set up as a temporary camp, right? But five years later, I imagine it must be way past the capacity that it was initially built for. Yeah, indeed. That's one problem. So the, the camp emerged, you know, organically as well. The people arrived, they were designated a particular area. It was mm-hmm. very inhospitable. It was forested and very hilly very prone to flooding, very Mm. unstable, prone to uh, landslides, mudslides. Uh, So from a humanitarian perspective, it's it's a really, really bad place to build such a huge camp. But but, but that's what grew out of of this emergency. So already the terrain is very difficult. And on top of that, people have built houses one on top of another really closely together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that makes it very, very difficult to... um, to manage good, a, a good level of, um, of hygiene, a good, a good level of, um, you know, basic services, because it's really difficult to actually get in and out, um, particularly when you get uh, heavy rains in the wet in the wet season. So as a re- as a result, yeah, it, it 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 means that you know on the one hand people are 100 percent dependent on the aid and services that are provided, um, but on the other hand, it's been very very difficult to maintain this level of support. Mm-hmm. year after year after year. Um, one of the other real challenges going forward is that international attention and international financial support is currently elsewhere. Um, we have other big emergencies worldwide, Afghanistan, Ukraine, to mention a couple. Um, so we have this population. It is growing, as you said, um, continues to grow. And they remain completely reliant on the support that they get, but the funding for that support is deteriorating. And we see as a consequence, the quality distribution and quantity of services available is also deteriorating. Hmm. All right. And we'll continue that discussion um, after a quick break. I'm speaking today to Paul McFun, Director of Operations for Southeast and East Asia Pacific for Doctors Without Borders. And we are talking about the humanitarian crisis in Cox's Bazaar and what's happening in the refugee camps there for the Rohingya people five years after the military crackdown by um, Myanmar in 2017. After the break, I'll ask Paul more about, you know, what what um, other neighbouring countries can do to improve this current situation. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Live and Learn, PFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. On the show with me today is Paul McFund, the Director of Operations for Southeast and East Asia Pacific for Doctors Without Borders, also known as Médecins Sans Frontières. And on today's show, we are talking about the situation in Cox's Bazaar just a little over five years after the initial crackdown by the Myanmar military in Rakhine State, which led to the exodus of more than 700,000 Rohingya people into Bangladesh. Now, today, the refugee camps across Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh make up the world's largest refugee camp um, with more than a million Rohingya people living there. And before the break, Paul was sharing about the dismal living conditions that he has seen in the uh, in the refugee camps, considering that it was meant to be a temporary shelter for the refugees. We were also talking about how other international crises, such as what we've recently seen in the past year or so with 
um, Ukraine and Afghanistan, how that is also affecting support and funding into the situation um, for Rohingya refugees. But turning to Bangladesh, which is the current host country for the Rohingya refugees there, how would you describe the response from Bangladesh in accommodating the refugees that have crossed over into their borders? Well, I, the first thing I'd have to say is, is quite remarkable that Bangladesh opened its doors in the way that it did. I mean, I think a decision was taken um, at the very top, and a decision was taken that we, you know, we 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 need to offer some protection, temporary protection to this population. Um, and Bangladesh, you know, opened its borders to this huge influx of refugees, and has uh, since then you know, continue to try um, and host that population and coordinate with the international community on the response itself. So they're very, very actively involved in that response. They help coordinate that response on the ground. They're very active. I met with a lot of uh, local authorities to understand um, from their perspective how they saw things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's quite commendable. I think the real challenge Bangladesh faces is that, of course, it wants these refugees to return. Um, that's the expectation Bangladesh has, of course. It's also the expectation of the Rohingya themselves. Everyone I spoke to, they want to go home. So there's, there's, you know, there's no one here who wants to really stay in Bangladesh, make Bangladesh their new home, or very few people. It's really about return. And the conditions for return are simply not there at mm-hmm. the moment. It's too unsafe and too insecure in Myanmar. Um, so the challenge is now five years on, how much longer is it going to take to resolve this? And are the policies and procedures that are in place now in Bangladesh going to be adequate um, for the future? So if we continue with this, you know, uh, uh, dealing with this as a temporary emergency situation, um, how, how sustainable and durable is that if, you know, we're going to have to continue to manage this from a humanitarian perspective for years to come? At some point, there needs to be a shift in the policy approach um, we need to acknowledge that, that you know, this population is going to in, get increasingly worse. Their health is going to continue to deteriorate um, as long as they have you know, a very min- minimal emergency uh, style approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't, can't build their own livelihoods, can't work, have no right to work and can't seek education, fend for themselves. And at some point, if there's no resolution. There needs to be a change in the approach. Mm. Since December 2020, I understand that the Bangladesh government also began relocating some refugees to the island of Basanchar, and that has been widely criticised. I mean, um, in a report by Human Rights Watch, even described it as an island jail in the middle of the sea. What? Why is this particular move problematic? You know, and how different is the situation on the island of Basanchar compared to other refugee camps in Cox's Bazar? It, it's it's problematic as 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 I think those observers don't see this really as a solution. It's it's more about simply you know removing some of the pressure of the mega camp in mm-hmm. Cox's Bazaar where there are almost a million people, and trying to relieve that by putting people elsewhere. And when you look at the numbers, you know that it's not it's probably not really going to make a significant difference mm-hmm. um, from that perspective. Um, we have not yet been to Basanchar. We have um, asked for permission to visit so that we can make an assessment ourselves and see if there's a need for us to you know, provide health services there or not, or if services are adequately covered. So we're not really in a position to judge how, mm-hmm. how things are being managed in Basanchar uh, uh, or, or really answer the question about whether that's adequate or not at this point. 
um, we we would prefer to you know first hand visit, talk to everyone, experience that, and uh, and then you know we can look at what we could do as an organisation to support that part of the response. Mm, all right. So then if we turn back to look at the situation in Cox's Bazaar, right, you also described this as a pressure cooker that no one is inclined to take off the stove. How did we get here? You know, what are sort of the different factors and responses by neighbouring countries um, on top of Myanmar's response that has led to the situation that we're seeing now? Yeah, well, there's several there's several things. And um, the, the first, of course, and, and it's the underlying problem, is that is that um, yeah the, the very perpetrators of the violence are, are, are now de facto the authority in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. So that that obviously makes it very very difficult to um, see how a negotiated change in positioning uh, towards the Rohingya population can can be realised. So the real fundamental challenge is you know how can we arrive at um, good guarantees. Dr. Rohingya could in fact return, be reinstated in their homelands, um, be afforded rights and be afforded protection, given the very same uh, military that drove them out is now um, de facto responsible mm -hmm. for their return. Mm -hmm. So that's a very, very challenging problem and it's a political problem that needs to be resolved um, through dialogue and intervention from the international community particularly, because of course it's in everyone's interests um, that these things are resolved. None the least for Myanmar, as there are now, of course, many sanctions, etc., imposed upon them, um, impeding their, their ability to progress as a nation as well. So it's in everyone's interest to find a resolution, but it's very, very hard to do. Next to that, then we have this large population sitting in Bangladesh. And uh, the, the challenge there is that other regional states have assumed very, very little responsibility um, to share that burden with Bangladesh. Instead, what we see around the region is that, is that um, regional countries have been securitizing their borders. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, closing their borders to refugees, limiting the access Rohingya and others might have um, to seek protection elsewhere. And, so, and as a result, we see, of course, Bangladesh managing by far and large the burden of refugees, even in the, the small number of cases where people have tried to get to other countries by boat, uh, they've ultimately ended up being returned and the only country that's willingly taken them back is again being Bangladesh. So I think this phenomenon, and it's not just in um, in Southeast Asia, but also Australia, mm -hmm. um, you know, despite being um, the only signatory to the, the Refugee Convention, has a very active or has had a very active policy of pushback, um, closing its borders and disabling people the access to come and seek asylum in their countries. So the fact that we have these, what I have phrased, draconian refugee policies, um, make it very, very difficult for people to seek protection elsewhere. Hence, the pressure continues to build in Bangladesh. Then, as I said, the funding situation um, is very, very hard to maintain. Uh, this is a huge refugee population. It's hugely expensive to maintain the appropriate level of assistance that's needed for them. And as we see that funding's gradually starting to fall away. Uh, and then there, there seems to be a real political deadlock. We're not seeing any new action. We're not really seeing much happening in terms of new negotiations. Uh, ASEAN as a, as a platform, you know, has really adopted a policy of non-interference mm -hmm. um, when it comes to neighboring countries. And that seems to, you know, that seems to trump any other possible influence or actions or activities that could be undertaken in terms of ASEAN really taking 
a strong leadership as a bloc. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the impact of the Rohingya and the situation of the Rohingya uh, it will continue to have a marked impact across the region. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that deadlock has to be broken. Um, uh, so these are some of the drivers that continue to build and build the pressure that this population are under. And it, it's just simply unsustainable. Um, it will not be contained in Bangladesh. It won't remain uh, in the way we currently see it. At a certain point, this population will be forced to take even more drastic measures um, to try and secure a better future. And the region will have to deal with that sooner or later. Mm. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? What are your concerns if the situation as it is continues and nothing is being done to address this crisis? Yeah, well, if, if I take it back to a basic camp level, I mean, right now we just we just did a survey, for for example, to illustrate a bit how things are. Mm-hmm. We, we, we did quite a widespread survey across the camp. We repeated something we've done in 2018, and we looked at people's access to water and sanitation. And what we found that is, although the quality of water had improved across the camp, 88% of people in that survey had inadequate access to sanitation facilities. 76% were using toilets that were overflowing. 51% had no uh, continuous access to water. And the consequence of this is that we're starting to see you know, a, a gradual increase in communicable diseases. Um, they're at the highest level that, that we've been experiencing in, in three years. We're seeing outbreaks of skin infections. At the moment, we're dealing with a, uh, a large-scale outbreak of, of scabies. We treated 42,000 cases of scabies mm-hmm. between March and June, and that's just in two camps and across two facilities. So this is the kind of reality. This is what this translates into. And so we have people living in increasingly precarious conditions. It will be harder and harder to maintain uh, the living conditions and that minimum level of sanitation and public health hygiene across this camp. And, um, and, and people uh, continue to feel insecure. They're incredibly vulnerable. They continue to be exploited both inside, outside the camp and across the many other countries where they're present. Um, and this is what just continues to drive the pressure. I mean, how long can people accept this and continue to live this way or survive, if you like, survive this way? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really, these are the kind of practical things that are affecting people. And, and as I said, o- overall, it, it builds this, this level of hopelessness. And, you know, people come to us hoping that we can help them with their mental health disorders. But at a certain point, as long as their situation doesn't change, there's very little we can do clinically to improve their health condition. And so that adds to this sense of desperation that they feel. And nearly everyone I spoke to, you know, they first and foremost worry about the safety of their children. What's going to happen next? Will they come home at night? Where are they playing? Who are our neighbors? Um, and these are the kinds of things that you know, we can relate to. This, this is what ultimately is, is simply unsustainable. Um, people will take more and more risks to try and find a, a better alternative. Mm. All they want is a place to call home, right? If if they can't return home, they want somewhere safe where they can live, where they can raise their children, where their kids have opportunities to um, to education, to work and things like that, which, like you've mentioned, they don't have or have very limited access to within the camps in Cox's Bazaar. Yeah, and as they, as they also say, you know, don't, don't imagine we had that in Myanmar either. No, mm-hmm. they didn't. They lived in, in also in very restricted um, environment. They had very little rights. 
around 600,000 Rohingya now live in containment camps in Myanmar. So, you know, they, they are not going to leave Bangladesh and return to a situation that might be the same or even worse, and very likely even worse. And they fear uh, what return to Myanmar would mean. So it, it's not the result of just five years of displacement. This mm -hmm. is the result for many of, of, of most of their lives living uh, as a persecuted and targeted um, Muslim minority. Mm. Five years is just that most recent um, military action that has been taken, but this has been really a situation that has been happening for decades, right, if not longer. Um, you know, Paul, as part um as you know being part of msf right humanitarian agencies are there um in these countries under the goodwill of the government you know how do you see that need to balance um a good relationship with the host country but also the need to advocate for the rights of these people rather than just you know being there with stopgap measures to help yeah i, I mean i think that what, what we have to try and do, we have to understand we're all on the same team. You know? I mean, everybody I spoke to, you know, they have a role and a purpose to support the Rohingya. I mean, they, we all have different constraints. Some of those, of course, are political um, and, and others, economic and other things. Mm -hmm. um, but we're on the same team. You know? So this situation is absolutely far from perfect. There are many things we would like to see changed and improved. But we have to work with uh, our counterparts. Um, they share the same interests. Um, they want the situation to be stable. They want the situation to be as good as it possibly can be under the circumstances. And so we have to find how we can constructively negotiate with them. One of the responsibilities we feel we share is that, you know, with the scale of our health services, we have 10 projects, that's 10 facilities, two large-scale secondary-level hospitals and many clinics. We, we have a real insight, um, probably the strongest insight to what's actually happening to this population from a health perspective. So we really need to work with our health counterparts so that they have that information, they understand also what's going on, and we can try and work together to come up with you know, better plans to deal with these things as they start to unfold. And that's gonna be particularly important going forward. Um, at the same time, I mean, we're treating people and we, we, we need to take responsibility to share um, what they're experiencing and, and make it clear um, you know, from their perspective, what's going on. Um, but we have to try and find ways to do that constructively. Hmm. So taking into account that, you know, there are other, unfortunately, other international crises happening as well. Um, and on top of that, you know, countries in the region are dealing with their own political situations, economic um, issues. What would you like to see from Myanmar's neighbouring countries, from Bangladesh's neighbouring countries to do their part in tackling in addressing the refugee situation in Cox's Bazaar? You know, if this political deadlock can be broken, what would you like to see? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing, you know, talking to you from Australia right now, I would say that I think Australia should, it should really be setting a, a new tone for humanity. There's been a government shift here, a tone for humanity and solidarity within the region. Mm -hmm. Um, and Australia, I would like to see Australia setting an example to, to, to open resettlement pathways. At, at the moment, Australia, there's no pathway for the Rohingya to seek protection and asylum in, in Australia. Whereas Australia has, has open, you know, openly created um, you know, humanitarian visa quotas for Ukrainians and for Afghans. 
Uh, but at the moment, there, rem there, there remains no pathway for Rohingya to seek Australia as a country possibly help for protection. Similarly, I, I, I would like to see the approach across Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, you know, become more accommodating to, um, to the Rohingya refugees. I mean, I, I understand, of course, Malaysia is already assuming a huge responsibility with quite a large number of, uh, of, of Rohingya who, who are hosted and live in Malaysia now. Um, but compared to the burden that Bangladesh is assuming, there's still more, I think, that countries in the region can do, um, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, probably particularly, and be more accommodating, of course, to those that ultimately seek the desperate alternative of taking to a boat or going over land to try and cross borders. And then we, you know, it's incumbent on the international community and, and the region, you know, to sort of reset how they can strengthen diplomatic channels with Myanmar. I mean, there are many political and economic issues at play there. That's mm -hmm. um, not an easy challenge. But, you know, it's if, if we don't hammer out a new approach, uh, or at least a better approach, um, and start to build some more strong regional coherence about how we're going to deal with this, and we will be dealing with it one way or the other, and I think it will be much harder, and the, the, the reality for the Rohingya by that point will have been much, much worse. And within all that, of course, I, th I think it's clear that China's probably in the strongest position to play a real leading role in terms of negotiating and trying to bring Bangladesh and Myanmar to the table. They've been doing that. I've been strongly invested in doing that already. Um, and I think you know the international community has to find a way to support that avenue. And lastly, of course, you know, in the meantime, we can't give up on humanitarian response. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they cannot survive on their own. Bangladesh cannot afford this burden of responsibility by itself either. We as an organization, we're committed to stay. We will continue to invest a significant amount in the region of 35 million euros a year to provide that health care. Um, and we need, we need to make sure uh, that others continue to make that commitment also. With a conflict that has been as protracted as this and as we've seen with, I think, other humanitarian crises in the Middle East and also what we seem to be seeing with what's happening in Ukraine as well, we mustn't let that sort of fatigue get to us, isn't it? There's a need to keep talking about this, keep highlighting this because, you know, just because we've forgotten about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the attention has drifted elsewhere. It's very hard to keep this situation alive. And yet it remains the biggest single refugee crisis in the world today. It's the largest number of people living in a contained camp setting um, in the world today. So, yeah, we, 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 we have to take a responsibility not to lose sight of that. Um, and because there is no solution in, in sight, it's not around the corner. That's for sure. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking to Paul McFun, Director of Operations for Southeast and East Asia Pacific for Doctors Without Borders, and we've been discussing the humanitarian crisis um, in the refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar and what neighbouring countries um, in Southeast Asia, more, but more broadly across the East Asia Pacific as well, can do to tackle this political deadlock. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcast podcast on bfm.my or on the bfm app i'm lim suen and this has been live and learn bfm 89.9 you have been listening to a podcast from bfm 89.9 the business station for more stories of the same kind download the bfm app